Hello and welcome. This is Puneet Surana and you are listening to the Galata podcast. Galata is a word from the Indian language Kannada that means the noise caused by a ruckus. This podcast is about starting up while we are still in college, testing ideas, creating a team, building something worthwhile and adding value to other people's lives. Join us as we discuss the thrill of earning your first buck. tackling uncertainties overcoming obstacles and delighting others most of all the galata podcast is about seeing understanding and implementing so you can deliver on your audacious promise we are joined by somebody who is so multi talented that it should be illegal he is a biker and avid chess player somebody who enjoys poker and pool he has read over 500 books but more than anything else what fascinates me is his journey from dropping out of ninth standard and trading to building india's largest brokerage firm zerodhar galata gang join me in welcoming the co-founder of zerodhar and true beacon nikhil kamath hi puneet Thank you. The usual first question I ask most of my guests is what were the conversations around dinner table especially when you're growing up? Growing up can be allocated to different phases in my life. So if you were to talk about uh, age 10 to 15 which I vividly remember, I think conversations much like any middle class brahmin household in India. I think a lot about education a lot about uh, what you're going to do when you grow up which career path you would choose i think that kind of dominated the conversations at that point of time how how did you get into chess though i'm curious and you yeah. became pretty competitive at one point yeah so chess started very early maybe when i was about 5 or 6 and then i think it started getting a lot more professional when i was about 12 or 13 so i would have a coach and i had like a trainer and i would travel for competitions and i would play for the for the nationals and all of those things but i think it got really competitive at about age 13 i remember you mentioned about the aggression of gary kasparov mm. um, across several interactions mm. um what about his aggression we have had um this for context we have had two episodes on aggression and how to really? use it in business uh-huh. we have gotten uh, <laughs> the person in aggression mm-hmm. uh, she's a jujitsu fighter mm-hmm. but i want to understand your perspective yeah so the thing with chess is it's less about intelligence but a lot more about uh, memory and reading up on theory a lot of people misconstrue someone who's a good chess player to be intelligent chess is more about learning end game learning middle game or reading up on every game which has ever happened in the past knowing all the openings so you have a limited amount of time during a game and you will have to be able to do things without thinking about it too much things which kind of become a part of your memory and it's something you can recall really quickly I think Gary Kasparov was one of the few people who was extremely creative and kind of deviated from traditional lines that players had followed in an aggressive manner. That kind of inspires you. And also the fact that he didn't care too much about following what 
was meant to be standard theory up until then and he created his own lines in chess so if you if you had to entice somebody about his uh, approach to chess mm-hmm. what instance was he would you tell them about kaspra mm-hmm. i would say like uh, i would call him aggressive but i would call him knowledgeably aggressive because even while he was being aggressive i thought i always thought that he knew exactly what he was doing and it was all planned out maybe not all of us could see ahead the way he could at that point of time and and i think he's one of the few chess players who has kind of transcended uh, just being a chess player and he's also an extremely successful businessman so i think one of the rare exceptions in chess because typically a chess player is only a chess player so many many impressive things about him and a lot to learn from him you know unusually on this podcast we have had we have, we have discussed about gary before mm-hmm. and his um tactics of how he would um disrupt vijay on uh, vishwanathan anand's focus mm-hmm. by banging the door and i could i could kind of relate to that and understand hmm that's an aggressive move made by him yeah yeah every now and then you have a chess player who comes around who is kind of like changing the status quo maybe magnus carlsen is the one now but back in the day it was definitely gary and bobby fisher and a bunch of people i think bobby fisher is another great chess player cuz he again had a very erratic life outside of chess i mean he defected from the country he belonged to he fought chess games which were pseudo battles in a way there are movies about him he went missing one fine day and then he was never to be found again up until much later in life so i think bobby fisher gary kasparov these are one of one of the few heroes of chess and it's a sport which is not typically a spectator sport hmm. so it's not a sport with a lot of sponsorship and in today's day when people do not have a lot of patience i would also call it a dying sport at some level but i think back in the day when it had the kind of folklore that chess did during bobby's time i think uh, he was exceptionally interesting as a person do you think chess is dying now that the attention span has reduced yeah Just yeah totally i think attention spans have reduced plus the fact that uh, there isn't enough money in chess i think there aren't many sponsors because there aren't many spectators so i think a lot has to be done to keep chess alive but it does look like it's dying isn't that at the fundamental of a lot of these sports that yeah. these are not really designed as a spectator sport and there's no other way to sustain yeah 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 it it'll be really hard if uh, chess has to become like you know the most watched sport in 10 years or 20 years down the line the i don't think the odds are very high yeah yeah damn <laughs> it would become like go because now nobody yeah. has heard of go yeah. and yeah. that's a sad future for the next generations because yeah. i think for indians chess has been a fundamental part in our growing up yeah years. yeah i think we had vishwanath and anand who kind of made chess popular in india yeah. but uh, also in chess i think only the top maybe four or five can do well and sustain their livelihoods you know outside of that it's very hard i know i right new of many struggling chess players and life is not very easy for them it would also always be a side thing never their main thing hmm. there's an interesting adaptation of bobby fisher's i didn't realize it until you actually shared um, there's a series called god friended me ah. on uh, prime and yeah. listeners you got to watch the series there's an actual episode that i'll probably share with you and the listeners there's this 
adaptation of Bobby Fischer's life, oh. and it's beautifully played. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> how do you build the analytical skills in chess and transfer that to something like trading? I don't think it's very organic. I think what chess teaches you to do is chess has a bunch of rules that you need to follow, right? Like you know, very simple stuff like control the center, develop your pieces, castle first. You typically try not to deviate too much from the basic inherent logics in chess, and I think the same kind of transcends into trading, wherein you have a bunch of core rules, you have a system in place, and Discipline in trading, I think, is the biggest uh, factor towards being successful at trading. I think trading is less about doing miraculous things and being able to call what will happen tomorrow, because mm-hmm. at the end of the day, nobody knows what will happen tomorrow, right? You can make a, a more informed guess about what might happen tomorrow, but having a system in place and being disciplined and following that system, I think, is the most important thing in trading. So that could be a similarity between the two. There's something which we keep filtering out, though I think trader after trader, book after book recommends. It somehow has gone to the part of our brains, especially those who are investing and trading actively to ignore it. Yeah. Yeah. So the markets are like a drug. So typically what happens is when you enter the markets, there will be a few times that you make money. And the hindsight bias is so strong that just because you made money those few times, even though you might not have done anything right, it would probably take you 10 times of losing the amount of money that you made in those first few times before you start to think rationally about the markets. I think uh, markets are something that should always be respected. The minute you start to think money comes easily in the markets or if you go after returns like you want to make 50% a year and stuff like that, they generally bounce back and bite you. So I think uh, you have to be very cautious when you go into the markets and go in with realistic expectations, but also a bunch of really cardinal rules in place. I'm glad that in the first five minutes, you're actually dissecting and opening up about the rules that you've set up. Have you had these rules that you have built and you stick to? Yeah, there are, there are many rules that one has to stick to. But outside of that, there are many things you, which suit your personal investing style, which you kind of have to develop and inculcate with time. Different things work for different people. And experience is probably the, the only thing that teaches you these things. And you give it the time, with time you will learn what suits you what kind of an investor you should be. But don't approach the stock markets blindfolded. I think uh, there is plenty of good material out there for one to read and learn from the mistakes others might have made and documented. And I think everybody should do that. Yeah. In fact, um, I was just quoting it to my sister yesterday. So Tony Robbins was writing this Mm. massive tome, Mm. uh, Seven Laws of... Seven Steps to Financial Freedom. Right. And he... Uh, have you read it? Uh, no, where he went ahead and interviewed 50 of the best traders slash investors across um, to find out what are the patterns. And one of them was Warren Buffett. Yeah. And interestingly, what happened was with Tony Robbins' network, um, he, I think he reached out to 50 people to get him to make personal calls, but Warren Buffett rejected all of them. Mm-hmm. And he said something which was quoted in the book. He said, everything that I wanted to share with people has already been shared 
on all right. these letters that I've written. Right, right. And that typically means that all the information that's required, especially for the young investor, is already out there. Mm-hmm. I agree. I mean, Tony Robbins might not be the best person to be interviewing traders. I, I typically don't like these self-help guys that much. But there's another guy, Jack Schwager. He writes a book series called Market Wizards. The good thing about him is he goes back in time and uh, interviews people from many different eras of trading. I think he's probably a better book and a better series to kind of track. But there is plenty to learn from these traders who operated in maybe the 60s or the 70s or the 80s or even in modern day. There are many similarities between good traders and there are many... uh, similarities between bad traders i think going through these series typically will help you end user pick up on some patterns i i disagree to the initial part because i think mm-hmm. tony is more focused towards because i've read his book mm-hmm. it's more focused on the psychology right and rather than the specifics right but i think somebody like jack schwager is focused towards the specifics yeah and that makes it very much more relevant yeah so trading i think to a large extent comes down to psychology more than anything else, there are many different ways of analyzing what your system or your trading strategy should be. Warren Buffett, like you mentioned, for instance, is a very fundamental guy. So he would go through the company's numbers, the P ratios, the debt, the leverage in the company, the inherent uh, fundamentals of the company. Somebody like modern day technical analyst, which is maybe the flavor of the last 10 years, will go through charts and look at patterns in prices which might have occurred in the last 10 years they might use a method like say japanese candlestick or fibonacci series or moving average crossovers or something as simple as that there are also the kind of investors who are more quant based who would work on uh, methods of mean regression uh, pair trading stuff like that but one common factor amongst all these different trading strategies is you have to be able to measure short-term sentiment. Because at the end of the day, when you choose to pick which kind of a trading strategy is very important. There are many ways to do this in the market today. I mean, you follow promoter flows. You see if a promoter is reducing his stake in the company. You see what the regulatory long-term environment is. If the government is pro the industry, the company, and what they're trying to build out in the future. You look at what foreign institutions are doing, you follow what the smart money is doing. But sentiment is, I think, the cardinal part of making any of these strategies work. Because at the end of the day, stocks move because people think they will go up or they go down. I don't think they move that much because of the fundamentals, the technicals or or how much they regress from the mean. So sentiment is something everybody should pay attention to. And the psychology of a trader is probably the most important thing to understand when it comes to trading. Have you unraveled the psychology of a trader and what are the what are the fundamentals of it? Where does he dabble between? One very intrinsic fact about human beings, not just traders, is if I were to tell you you have a chance of making you have a fifty percent chance of making fifty bucks and you have a fifty percent chance of losing fifty bucks, you wouldn't take that bet. Fear dominates our uh, psyche a lot more than greed does. To be able to get to a point where you're very clinical about this and you weigh each transaction you're entering, not by 
what your subconscious is telling you but more by what the inherent odds are is a part of the evolution of every trader and i think uh, it takes time to get there to be able to remove sentiment remove all kinds of biases from your own mind but once you get there you start getting less affected by the ups and downs of everyday trading life mm-hmm. if you were to like really get affected by having a good day and a bad day i think you burn out very quickly it's very hard to continue to be a investor or a trader on a long 10 20 year basis if these things continue to affect you so <laughs> what what was your first loss like and how did you uh, i think the first company i bought was something called marsoft a penny stock when i was 17 i mean it's it's a long time ago now it's about 17, 17 years, years ago yeah <laughs> but that was the first profit and i bought it at 4 bucks it went to 10 bucks and i sold it hmm. i remember losing all of what i had made on that on the first derivative transaction which i took right after that yeah ah. yeah that there's another big lesson in there somewhere that leverage can kill you very very quickly and as far as it can be avoided especially naked leverage should be avoided yeah how do you take that what do you do So when I was 17 I used to also work at a call center so I had a wage coming in so I was able to replenish my trading account but uh, it is very disappointing it's fairly disappointing because the first transaction where it made a profit would have told your mind that it's a uh, it's possible to make money that easily but then when you end up losing it all in the same manner I think your mind gets a bit confused and wonders what to do but the memory of the first profit sticks with your mind a lot more than the loss and you keep trying to attempt to do the same thing without wondering if it's right or wrong wow that's a new perspective yeah yeah so if you've done 10 transactions and you've lost on 8 and you've made money on 2 strangely your mind will remind you of the 2 a lot more than the seven, the 8 ones uh, which have gone bad you mm-hmm. tend to block the bad and remember the good or reminisce the good that's more detrimental to the cause than anything especially when you're trying to be a trader or investor this i i like that we just getting into your minds right now starting to and there's a very contrarian view it's different and i'm happy that you shared this but tell me something around the same time you're 17 18 you just stopped schooling yeah stopped schooling much earlier i think around 15 14 15 around that age got my first job in a call center called 24 bar 7 when i was 17 i still remember I, you could not actually get a full time job because you were not 18 mm-hmm. but i had friends in the company who were interviewing me and they kind of allowed me to join at 17 without verifying how old i actually am actually that was the boom for call centers <laughs> in india yeah. at that period i think it must have been 2002 or mm-hmm. 2000 something like that Uh, so when i joined the company it had 400 people or 250 people and when i quit the company in a couple of years it had grown to something like 10000 people wow yeah yeah i did stay there for a couple of years by virtue of not being really good or anything but by virtue of the company growing as quickly as it did you tend to get promoted and start making a little bit more money the last year in that company I spent a significant amount of time in the UK and uh, I used to sell accidental insurance, insurance for a company called Stonebridge part of the Aegon group 
interesting time though i think teaches you when you try and sell on the phone all day so our typical day would be it was the uk shift so you would go into work by about 4 pm and finish at about 1 am but those 8 9 hours would be repetitive calls to people in the uk cold calls traditionally where you just call people they pick up the phone and you try to sell them insurance yeah. and they hang up uh, on you <laughs> yeah yeah a product that they don't need yeah so it teaches you a little bit about selling and stuff like that which is useful well, what is what is it like to a mind of a 17 year old who's just getting started in life yeah. talking about mortality and death <laughs> yeah, on the yeah, phone yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it was really weird because we had to ask them if they had pre existing medical conditions because then they would not qualify the the toughest part of these calls was to get their bank details mm. i think uh, what was it called in the uk you could either pick a credit card or they had something called a sort code back then and for for somebody to give that to somebody else who's calling them from another continent and just over the phone which is a cold call was very different very difficult we had to build trust through the conversation by kind of saying names of companies that they might recognize mm. so we would say stuff like uh, you know you shop at a certain supermarket around you and then you know try and inculcate trust through the phone call but very interesting sales process yeah you know now they are actually training indians to uh, learn the british accent back then too yeah mm-hmm. oh okay yeah we had pseudo names we didn't even use our actual names So they didn't want people to know we're calling from India. India. Right? Oh yeah. my god, this yeah. is totally <laughs> yeah, 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 it's been going on for a long time. The problem here is how much ever you try and train somebody to sound British in a 6 month or a 3 month training mm. period, you're not going to achieve it. So we ended up sounding like this weird crossbreed of India and <laughs> everybody on the other end knew you were not British even though you tried to fake an accent and stuff like that. <laughs> I remember this Instagram post that you made very early on hashtag #child labor. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I I think uh, things like that do not happen today. Yeah. But I think 17 years ago things were a little more lax. I'm still curious. I want to dig in a little deeper cuz for a lot of young minds listening to this, mm-hmm. they have always thought of, you know what, let me drop out and start something and they're sold on this idea of, you know, what, they got to drop out and build a company and the American dream which is more American than the Indian dream that's what i call it but how did you get in a circumstance situation where you opted out of school yeah many reasons a i have to say dropping out of school has become cool now yeah but back then it was something which was looked down upon people would wonder what is wrong with you so when i dropped of sc- dropped out of school i'm sure my parents were petrified and my relatives were wondering what's going on in my life a couple of factors helped me along the way So even before the call center I used to have like a cell phone business and a garment business when I was 14 15 I had Marwadi friends who kind of like mm. grew up very fast that was one of the triggers chess was one of the main triggers so a bunch of these factors allowed for me to quit but I have to say I got extremely lucky being in the right place at the right time many at many many different points in life I would not recommend it Right. because if you were to like rationally think about it and weigh the odds of how that might transpire today i think having a formal education having a full education is something which uh, is really helpful in life and 
even though things might have gotten well and uh, I might have gotten lucky and all of that, you still wonder, you know, when your friends talk about college was the best time right. of their life. Uh, they have so many memories. They have friendships. All their biggest friendships in life were created in college and later parts of school, which I did not do. There is something that, you know, you feel like you still feel like you miss out on something. Even though things might have gone well in other ways. It was interesting, uh, Gary's quotes. I, sh- I got to share that. <laughs> it's from his book. Uh, it says, The loss of my childhood was the price for becoming the youngest world champion in history. When you have to fight every day from a young age, your soul can be contaminated. I lost my childhood. I never really had it. Did I have to be careful not to become cruel? Because I became a soldier too early. Yeah, totally agree. Totally agree. I think this is a, this, the weird thing is this conversation comes up all the time. Like you're with a bunch of friends and they start talking about college and all the crazy things they did yeah. and all the experiences they had. You will always miss that immaterial of where your life might take you after having dropped out. Mm-hmm. And you know, life is long. There is no hurry to do a certain thing. And I don't think there is that much of an advantage starting at X age versus Y age that warrants dropping out and it's always good to have insurance in life and having a degree from a great college or having learned a new skill set in a formal manner is always beneficial in the long run. There are a lot of interesting aspects that we are actually discussing right now, listeners. Do you know what I like about you already? Mm -hmm. Is how differently you look at certain aspects of life, education as insurance, mm-hmm. focusing on the first few wins right. rather than the losses. Yeah. There's an interesting study apparently which mm-hmm. says negativity or loss mm-hmm. is 17 times more impactful than the good ones. Mm-hmm. And here I am looking at, hmm, so yeah. there are these little shifts about you which I think form the bigger part of the nickel. Yeah, when it comes to education, I think... A lot has to change. Our education systems are still programmed, still derived from the education of the Industrial Revolution in a way. We are educated in the factory assembly lines kind of manner. In the world that we live in today where information is available very easily online, I mean, you can Google absolutely anything today. Less prevalence, I think, has to be paid on being able to regurgitate information or repeat information and more attention towards, you know, being creative and actually assimilating the information in a manner where you understand what you're studying. Education systems across the world have to recognize that at some point because if I have to go back to school and study a bunch of dates and, you know, stuff like that is no longer relevant in a in a world today where these things can be looked up so quickly or even a different language for that matter if say a translation app gets to the point where it does it on a real no it, it is there um, there's yeah. a Pakistani movie on this yeah. where this Chinese guy goes to yeah. Pakistan yeah. falls in love with a Pakistani girl yeah. yeah and all he uses is phone to translate between yeah. Chinese and Urdu yeah. yeah exactly so I think education and systems have to change across the world We have to make it more relevant to what is required today with the advent of, you know, internet everywhere and people 
if I can consume education online like I am able to right now, there is a case to be made as to why should I learn physics from the physics teacher in my high school versus the best physics teacher in the world. And even while I'm learning from the best physics teacher in the world, why should I learn what that teacher thought 10 years ago or 20 years ago from the syllabus created by a certain government, but not learn about the breaking technology of today and how I am able to contribute to it by virtue of being able to, you know, participate in the process versus being able to repeat what happened in the past. I think uh, there's plenty that can be changed with education. A lot of people are attempting it, but now more than ever, because everybody has access to internet and everybody has a smartphone and you could be in a tier three village in India, you can still access it. I think the time is ripe right now to be able to change something there. And to all of you listening who are out of the education system, I must admit that Nikhil may be out, but he's a very good student. He's read over 500 books. It's rare that I meet people who read that many books as much as I do. But tell me how. Okay, I'll be really candid and honest about this. Are you not about the rest of the (laughs) (laughs) So when you drop out of school really early and you know for a fact your friends are going to school and they're studying and they're in college and they have a career roadmap set for them, you kind of tend to overcompensate because you feel... You know, like FOMO, like the fear of missing out. (laughs) And uh, it began with overcompensating for the fact that you're not going to formal education systems. But that trend continues because when you start reading stuff, not because somebody is asking you to read stuff, but you pick stuff Mm -hmm. that you like to read. uh, It's a more organic process, which leads into reading more. Even for uh, the students of today, especially like we were talking about the education systems right now, especially in a country like India, we have very little choice. We have a similar curriculum for everybody. There should definitely be more choices in place much earlier in our life, wherein we're allowed to pick what we want to study. Like a kid in the fifth grade, if he's really interested in X subject, should be allowed to you know focus right. more of his time on that. I think that's, again, something that education systems need to change. Actually, I'm talking about this a lot, ironically, since I did not go through the <laughs> whole process. But You know, you created your own education system. Hmm. I, I remember this instance, <laughs> which is so apt. I had a very, very, very heated debate in college once hmm. where it was getting so hot between the professor and I that we knew one is going to just burst out. Right. And the professor did before I did. Right. And he said something that has changed the way I look at books and education. He's a musician. He still is all fat children. That's the band he runs. Uh Dude, if you want to get an education, go to the library. Right. If you want to get laid, come to college. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, if you're talking about Indian colleges, I I doubt how many people are getting (laughs) laid. But they are. In in fact, there's this research that says that 70% of content companies target to pre-teens and teens. Because wow. they are the main customers. It's wow. not the ones who are in the 20s. Really? Yeah. That's. I, I might be like out of sync with the world <laughs> of today. Yeah, I, I don't know uh, what is happening in colleges today. But my perception of college from when I remember it back in the day, not by virtue of going there, but by looking at people, was it was very traditional and typical. And I live in the south of Bangalore, which is a very... If not now, 17 years ago, is very 
Brahmin dominated typical middle class south indian households where forget getting laid i think uh, talking to a woman was taboo yeah you know interestingly a year ago barkha dat wrote this article which says that the average indian girl is losing her virginity at 16 wow <laughs> crazy <laughs> You got it from training to sex all the time. <laughs> What age were you? <laughs> I was twenty-one. Yeah, something like that for me too. I yeah. think. Yeah. Yeah. Lives are times are changing very times quickly. Times are changing. Yeah. yeah. But kids are more evolved now. Each time I meet a five-year-old or a ten-year-old or even a fifteen-year-old, it is uh, they are discerningly, distinctively. much more evolved than we were at that age but 10 year old today is much smarter and much uh, better read than a 10 year old version of me and i would say the same for a 5 year old or a 15 year old yeah i remember one of my mentors said it so beautifully in this seminar for parents and students mm-hmm. he's blatantly put it out there that parents your kids know more positions than you do <laughs> <laughs> and these are cool children so right. i totally understand the exposure they have had but mm. i think missing a few elements nikhil mm. that you and i learned it the hard hard way right what elements do you think these are and so i interact with uh, many young people i put them in different buckets the affluent young are missing a purpose in life they have by virtue of who their parents have been have had such a sheltered life that they're not in touch with reality the way they should have been in a way i think they'll find it extremely hard because they'll find a huge shock you know when they go into the system and try to do something because they don't really know what is actually going on out there they might be very book smart but they have no idea of what is happening on the streets in a way that's the affluent portion and they're very emotionally needy as well uh, they first world problems like their mental state and their happiness quotient and stuff like that play a much larger role in their lives versus say 15 20 years back when it was all about you know going out there proving yourself or earning a wage and stuff like that i don't know if it's good or bad but very very different i would bucket that as the affluent young of today between the age of 15 to 25 maybe on the other end of the spectrum i think there is a lot of hate even though we might say you know education can help you you know cross barriers anybody who starts from a can become z the whole american dream whatever be it it is actually very hard for somebody born in a lower middle class household today to do extremely well in life and uh, this whole income inequality at the top has them really disgruntled in a way So I think those are the two big differences I see a amongst the affluent who have created new problems for themselves which did not exist up until now and b for the not so affluent who have kind of like started hating on you know the incomparities and the fact that they realizes even though they might be one outlier who you know breaks out mm. and kind of does stuff it's quite hard generally I'm a big believer in cycles in life and i'm a big fan of history i read a lot about history and i i think what has happened in the past will repeat itself this income inequality is a really big problem typically if you were to go back to say the 15th century the 13th century 
think about a time when Christianity was not the most prevalent thing and we didn't have these moral, arbitrary modern moral codes which were set up. When income inequality rose to levels like we are seeing today, there would typically be a coup, there would be a king who gets thrown out or there would be a revolution, there would be something like that. The onus at some level should fall on the rich of today, not because they are altruistic and want to do better for the world or whatever, but more because they have to realize that if this continues, there will be a revolution of sorts. There will be people, I mean, if one person has as much wealth as 99 people and there are 100 people in the society, it is but a matter of time before the 99 people go to him with, you know, like machetes and sickles and, yeah. yeah. So something has to be done there. In fact, this is something that I observe in Marwari community that I live in, wherein there are few that live so large Mm -hmm. that the local community is getting outraged and that could be felt in a lot of actions. And so I understand from that perspective when you scale it at large. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, these people spending uh, hundreds of crores on their kids' weddings when people are dying yeah. of starvation next door is bound to cause re- resentment. You know, I mean, there is... Right now it has become palpable across the world, yeah. right? Uh, especially... I think why something like the corona pandemic which is going on right now are big triggers in this cycle which kind of expedite the process. Because yeah. you might hate this whole phenomena in the ecosystem wherein there is so much income inequality that 80 people are hungry and the other 20 people who are around are wasting as much food as 200 people might have needed. A virus, a pandemic, a huge economic uh, depression, stuff like this kind of expedites the whole process of the revolution that might come about. But I think it's... I I disagree, Nikhil. You know what's happening? It's actually making it even more evident right now. Mm -hmm. If you look at, interestingly, the rich are getting richer even now. Mm -hmm. Totally. I I agree with that point. They are getting richer even now. But the poor or the unprivileged or the people Mm -hmm. who have not had the opportunity might use times like this or might be triggered by times like this to act while they might not have been able to act up until now by virtue of, you know, being busy at whatever they were trying to be. Mm. I was talking to some people who are my friends in the local police force and stuff like that. The amount of unemployment this virus has caused is definitely going to have a ripple effect in crime. And it's crime at all levels. It could be, you know, like petty crime, it could be serious crime. It'll be a new world post-corona and it's scary thinking about uh, new kind of things you might have to worry about which you didn't have to up until now, especially when it comes to crime. I think we all have to be more cautious. I think that's the hope with this podcast somewhere right now. I remember a friend of mine, in fact, one of the first person I interviewed, Chakradhari Rove, when I was 16, 17, Mm -hmm. I was writing this book. He said something that really changed the way I look at youth. He said, Puneet, you know, the biggest problem with India is not China, Pakistan. This was back mm-hmm. seven, eight years now. So in a way, he's like visionary to ask this that early. He's like, our biggest problem is our own youth. If they are not organized, they're going to turn against each other. Yeah. And something like the corona situation is just the right time to get constructive rather than destructive. Mm-hmm. And this brings me back to 2010, which was like the worst year for trading. Right. And probably this is the worst year for startups. Yeah. I mean, 
I would say 2008-9 was the whole crisis. Mm-hmm. To a large extent, we we didn't feel the crises as much as one might have in the West. Because India was not as globally connected and we were not as dependent on the Western economies as we are today. We started in 2010. It was a very organic process. So through 2003, 2002-3 when I started trading, it was a progression from trading to managing money for some people to being a sub-broker for some other broker. So me and my brother used to do this together and he used to be a sub-broker with something called Reliance Money. I had a sub-broker with a company called Way to Wealth. Mm-hmm. I worked in India Blue Securities for a while. Throughout this time, I would trade for myself and that would be my primary source of income. The biggest problem at this point was uh, the cost, you know, the brokerage cost. So if I were to make five in a month you would end up spending mm-hmm. something like two or three out of that just in costs and commissions you mean five percent and two to three percent uh say five thousand rupees okay, or five five rupees let's assume you would end up paying as much as two rupees and just you know brokerage costs and commissions and stuff like that this continued all the way till 2008 2009 when we kind of like I means that other formally launched in 2010 but for a year or two before that we were kind of like, you know, ideating, building the product, thinking of what we should be doing around it. The main focus might not necessarily have been to become the largest broker and all of that. One of the big focuses for us was the amount of cost saving we would have by being a broker yourself versus using somebody else and giving them money. I think at the very inception of Zeroda, we were trying to save costs and uh, we had a bunch of clients whose money we would manage and stuff like that. But ever since Zeroda began, uh, it has grown organically. I think, uh, again, I would put a lot of weight in the success story of Zeroda, A, on the people who are around, then like the, the team which was with us when we began, but also on luck. You know, I think, we began at a time when there were not many people in the broking industry who were trying new things. These were people who had been beaten down by the fall of 2008 and nine, And right. nobody knew it was the beginning of a bull market in a way because the markets rallied for many years, starting from 2009-2010. So many things fell in place and being at the right being in the right time right place at the right time is such a big thing because mm. if we were to try doing exactly what we did back then today i think would be a herculean task it would be a hundred times harder one thing that i think i have to emphasize to all the listeners is that much before even something like zeroda started there was a 13 year groundwork that nathan and nikhil both of you put in and i think that somewhere for listeners is important because it gets out of the picture, they still look at the 10-year trajectory, but they don't look at the 13 years of groundwork that was laid in in terms of just building that network. Let's focus on how you've reinvented your thinking. Because mm-hmm. I realized an interesting YouTube comment led me to this train of mm-hmm. thoughts. Where it's like, hmm, so you made a lot of killing in the derivatives market and now you're talking about being conservative. Right. I was like, interesting, wait. Right. That's less of a criticism and more of how this man has transformed his way of looking at things. Right. And so I want to probe in um, yeah. and yeah. understand. Yeah. So ever since I started like 17 years ago trading, focus has been derivatives. 
but I have gotten wiser at trading in derivatives by virtue of all the experiences I've had through these years. If I were to advise somebody starting off today or someone who has been in the market for the last couple of years would be to not have to go through the process of burning out so many times and having all those ups and downs and stuff like that. A very realistic goal when you enter the markets is our benchmarks, the Nifty, for instance, has done about 11-12% year compounded over the last 10 years or the last 20 years. And uh, we are at a point in time today when interest rate cycles are falling very quickly. Bank FTs just do not make sense anymore. They barely even beat inflation at the current point. The government does not want you to put money in gold because we don't have any gold as a country and it has a bad impact on our fiscal deficit because we end up importing it. And real estate, which has been the primary store of wealth in India, has plateaued over the last five or six years. So at this point of time, money has very few avenues left to go to. I foresee a lot more money coming into the stock markets over the next five to 10 years. And at this juncture, I think if you were to have a balanced portfolio, have some kind of uh, diversification in place, and you're allocating capital to equity markets right now, I don't think it's the hardest thing in the world to be able to make 15% a year over the next, you know, 5-10 years. And that is an incredibly good rate of return. If you make 15% a year, you're doubling your money in under 5 years. Yeah. No, people don't get that. Yeah. But I've been studying compound interest for 7-8 years now. And I haven't found a real way to communicate, you know what, the power, this is the power of compound interest. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think a very uh, useful tool here is something called the rule of 72. If you want to figure out how many years your money will double in, divide the rate of return you're getting by 72 and it'll give you the number of years. I think that kind of makes it a little more legitimate in people's minds when they go with compounding. So if you think you're getting a 10% rate of return, you divide 72 by that and you know your money will double in uh, in seven years. If you're getting 15%, you know it'll double in five years. If you're getting uh, 5%, you know it'll double in 14 years. So the power of compounding is incredible. And the real advantages of Mm -hmm. compounding do not come in the first five years, but Mm -hmm. when you go beyond that. And in a time like today when it looks likely that a lot more money will come into the capital markets, I think it's a great time to, you know, stick to large cap equity, stick to companies which will take most advantage of the India growth story. Don't try and do anything too special. And you would still end up being a winner. Whereas if I were to recommend somebody to use leverage and go into the derivative ecosystem right now, there is a 50-50% odd that you would burn out in two years or three years because you can't time short-term cycles in the market. And if you're leveraged five times your capital, you just need a 20% down more to wipe you out. That's why I recommend investing versus trading derivatives short-term. There are a lot of people out there who go out and say, people on the news who will tell you what will happen at 12 o'clock today or how the markets will close. People who give you tips on different companies. Uh, people who tell you this company buy at 50, it will go to 200 in six months, stuff like that. I can tell you all of that is rubbish. Like, absolute bullshit like nobody knows what will happen tomorrow like 
forget me or you or a analyst on tv or somebody who's writing about it in the news nobody has any idea with any kind of certainty what will happen uh, let alone one year down the line but even tomorrow just thinking about it if i knew what was happening tomorrow i would not be going out there and screaming about it but i would be using that to make money so nobody really knows so don't fall for you know tips especially on penny stocks and companies which don't have the levels of governance and compliance which a typical company should have don't look at shortcuts when it comes to making money add balance and diversification in your portfolio which will help you tide over times when a certain asset class or a certain industry might not be doing well typically if you're a affluent investor who has a certain amount of money to be allocated to the stock market and can afford diversification i typically recommend as a family portfolio reducing a the real estate exposure from typically what is 70 80% to down to 30% i say do 30% real estate do another 35% in equity and the balance you split between fixed income and say a commodity like gold with fixed income i mean not corporate debt but government backed debt with sovereign guarantees like tax free bonds and gsex if you have a portfolio like that and investing is not your primary job but it's a place to allocate your savings to i think you will do significantly well and significantly better than giving your money to an investment advisor or or following tips and stuff like right. that and just stick to like quality companies in all of these asset classes another huge detrimental fact a uh, detrimental factor here is when you give your m- money to a fund manager typically he charges you 2% a year and that's outside of what the distributor makes uh, that's outside of uh, what your exit load might be and what your setup cost might be and these costs are the biggest detriment to your portfolio over a 10 20 year period because like your gains compound even the fees you pay compound yeah keep it simple keep it realistic and at this current juncture at 2020 when so much more money could be coming into the markets is probably the best way to be placed for the next 5 or 10 years i'm reading this greek philosophical book and i mm. totally correlate with you which one um it's called courage to be disliked mm. i know you into greek yeah uh, yeah before the point gets yeah. lost then we get into greek concepts because yeah. that's a little yeah. deep what he is suggesting is to be average have the courage to stay average and not be an outlier or beat the market and there's a lot of wisdom in it um i think he's he's really brought out a sample portfolio for affluent ones if you're a beginner investor i'll link up to shraddha's interaction with him where he actually does it for a beginner investor on money matters i think that's a very good resource so we won't regurgitate that but we'll get into greek conversation now ah sure i mean <laughs> The thing I like about the Greeks versus I mean you can read philosophy originated from many different pockets right many geographies one of the things I like about the Greek starting from say a Socrates or or his de- descend or people who considered him a mentor like Plato or whatever I think their ability to question and the curiosity they had about everything be it about a god be it about religion is very appealing to me many things even today in the ecosystem that we live in might not make sense to person like me or to most people 
but we lack the ability to be curious enough to be able yes. to question it i think uh, a large part of why we don't have the greek gods that we had at one point like the god of thunder and lightning and all of that is because philosophers of the day had the ability to question and when things did not i mean sure in their lifetimes they might have you know like socrates was killed by the government yeah. the incumbents of that day because he questioned religion and people thought he was uh, leading the youth of the day astray by questioning the prevalent religion of that time when you question everything that is going on in your ecosystem i think the natural progression from questioning is you kind of like tweak the systems to be better and i think the greeks did that before anybody else sure they had uh, catastrophes in their future and they screwed up like everybody else in the world did at different points of time but that one factor kind of leads me more towards greek uh, philosophy than others and these weren't formal very structured questions guys um, which a lot of us are told to do so yeah, <laughs> yeah like, these were very loose loosely yeah. worded yeah like in if i were to like derive learnings from there into today's ecosystem one has to question if our political systems are right if i have a big issue with things like you know why don't we have RTI on political donations yeah. why should uh, our countrymen not know which corporation is giving how much money to which political party i do not totally agree with the election process as well why shouldn't uh, the politicians of today also have not just educational qualifications but qualifications of all sort at play why shouldn't we have a cap on election spending if a political party has to spend 50000 crores to win an election how does anybody else who might be better and more innovative stand a chance there is there is so much that can be questioned today i mean uh, you can even go back and question if our version of democracy is that the best for the world that we live in today and does it just make us inefficient and maybe it's in the past and maybe we need to look at changing it so i have always believed populism is in a way a precursor to socialism and uh, populist leaders of today like modi we trump and many uh, boris johnson to a certain extent many populist leaders across the world might be leaning the world towards socialism in the future uh, something we have tested in the past and we have figured does not work so there can be so much that can be changed in many spheres of our life today and the problem is questioning the status quo which exists now is kind of like uh, looked down upon and uh, people come after you when you do it and stuff like that i think we need to create a more robust environment wherein people are allowed to say what they think ask questions about things they do not agree with and in the truest form a democracy has to afford that yeah i i agree with you and sort of disagree with you we as indians are not really used to questioning mm-hmm. though i love the greek approach i mean i come from the largest toastmasters club in the country and you know across 170 to clubs in here and i think about a few thousand across the country we start our meetings with let's not talk about sex religion and politics we right. don't want those three to be touched or questioned right. right um it's hard to change things when 
we're so rigid about so many things and question yeah. them right yeah. like questioning somebody's questioning a religion becomes like a personal remark yeah it could be faced it or people today face it yeah there a lot of influencers have gone out and questioned mm-hmm. and i and i've heard of- i think the same kind of translates into companies as well companies which are very rigid in their preconceived prevalent notions and are not willing to question if what they're doing is right and if they need to structurally change from what they are as a company and evolve into something else and i think these are the companies losing out today and the companies which are doing better are uh, companies who are willing to change change very quickly change not just a small part of what makes them a company but change the very structure of the company itself and the very uh, clientele they might be catering to or the very uh, product they might have in place right now so if it works for companies and companies which are willing to question and change are doing extremely well i wonder why the same should not work for the other the different diasporas that we kind of like have to deal with today key differentiator would be to question and change before things are broken yeah not after because yeah. then that's i think that's what happened back in 2010 leading up to i think 2013 14 where you were questioning essentially the idea of the brokerage fees and yeah. today with with true beacon yeah. you're questioning this entire assumption of a flat fee yeah. plus yeah 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 uh, all these hidden costs yeah. and then yeah yeah so true beacon is very new it takes about a year year and a half to get the licenses in place but uh, we've been active as a fund for about 9 months now fund has done exceedingly well we've gotten lucky there again i think uh, it is outperforming the nifty by about 25% our target is only to outperform by about 6 to 8% mm-hmm. the asset management industry has not changed in 10 years in 20 years the prohibitive fees that i mentioned earlier are all prevalent you have large asset managers like private banks and uh, the incumbent players in india who you know sell you a product that they did not create they charge you a fee then the mm-hmm. guy who runs the product charges you another fee there are fees when you set it up there are fees when you exit all of this immaterial of the fact if the end user is making money or yeah. not we're trying to change that with true beacon we're trying to be the first client aligned asset management company we don't charge any kind of fees no standing fees no setup fees no exit fees we are completely open ended no middlemen no distributors if the client were to put in a 100 and he makes 10 bucks that year it becomes 110 at the end of the year we charge one as fee i think the amount of transparency we will bring right. into the model will kind of help true beacon do well as a company and we found luckily a great team to start the company with the guy who is the ceo of that company happened to be a friend of mine who i met through serendipity which is which happens to be one of his favorite words and he says a lot <laughs> he's a 50 year old uh, british guy with a very very interesting background he was in the british air force the raf for 18 years as a fighter helicopter pilot mm. led a team of helicopters to you know the invasion of uh, iraq saddam hussein was part of the 
Northern Ireland anti-terrorism uh, squad was fighting the war in Kosovo. Did this for 18 years. Quit the Air Force, the RAF. Became uh, chief of staff for Prince Charles in Buckingham Palace for 10 years. Organized Prince William's wedding and mm. uh, traveled with Prince Charles across the world, meeting presidents and prime ministers. Quit that and then joined Standard Chartered as the vice chairman globally of their private bank. I had to convince him for many months to quit his very, very senior job at Standard Chartered to start this new thing with me in India, in Bangalore, of all places. <laughs> How he did you to, do that? I, he had you know to relocate. What I've started loving is yeah. conversations where the entrepreneur actually tells how they got their key personal in. Mm. Alcohol, <laughs> I think. <laughs> okay, please enlighten. <laughs> yeah, so we would hang out a lot and we would catch up over the weekends and have a few drinks and stuff like that. So I never drink during the week, typically because I start work very early. So one random Wednesday, I think we were at a bar and between me, him and an Irish real estate guy, we had four bottles of vodka. And somewhere at 3 a.m. or 4 a.m., we started talking about this and this new thing that I was doing. And I asked him if he would join. And he said, yeah. And I held him to it. And <laughs> he hasn't been able to take it back since. And I think we got... You couldn't yeah. blame it on the drink. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. That's how we actually got him. But uh, he's a great guy. Uh, how did you discover somebody like him? I met him through common friends initially to begin with. But uh, we were friends for a good six months before we, you know, we, either of us asked each other, what do you do professionally and stuff like that. A very interesting chap. So he is uh, leading the True Beacon venture. It's right now focused on ultra HNI, so minimum ticket size of about two million dollars. The reason it is as high as yeah. that is we can't afford to service too many people at the cost structure that we have. But we have some great people who have uh, signed on as clients right now. Fascinating. Right? In fact, I'm telling you with Galada Podcast. So my goal with this is to get ten people to read hit. 100 crores. Yeah. It's a matter of time that something like True can get 5 to 10 clients from Galata Gang. Yeah, um, yeah definitely. We're looking forward to them. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Give us 5 to 10 years because I think with all the leverage information we have, the time to make a lot of money has reduced. Mm-hmm. You have to be right only once or twice. Yeah. At least in the startup space. Yeah. To get things running. Yeah. Luckily, also with True Beacon, I think uh, the fact that it's not a venture essentially to make money for me personally. It's more to change the problems I feel when I try to allocate my personal money to somebody. Like the whole idea was conceived because I had a relationship with a private bank and I was trying to allocate my funds, buy a bunch of products and they were just like, you know, ripping me off left, right and center. And also to be in the privileged position of having something that has worked already, you can have like a really long runway, you know, you can run it for the next five years and not think about money. And it helps you do things properly. Right. And not take shortcuts. You know, that's the best thing about staying private that I have noticed. Yeah. From small startups to as big as Coke Industries, you guys should check up Coke Industries and how they've built us. Have you? Are you talking about the Coke brothers? Yeah, 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 yeah. They, I mean, they're very uh, controversial in many ways, yeah. to say the least. I don't quite agree with 
their opinions on water their uh, opinions on uh, climate change their political donations right. there are many things it's about them. yeah yeah many it's things about them secrecy. to like but there's yeah. things about them to dislike and like yeah yeah what i love about them is how they have been able to think in long terms right decades and two decades and how it has helped them over time yeah to make these really far looking bets and yeah, yeah. they they are they are brilliant i a few years ago like i was reading a book about them and they've been buying up is it coakland i don't remember which one it was but i Yellow remember cow. reading that they're buying land with natural springs Mm-hmm. Is that the one? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because they realize how water will become a commodity in the future. <laughs> you know, one thing that I took from that book was one to stay private, mm. be be the one who's behind the scenes. That's why I think I I connect with you because you have the background and building things. And two was this that you got to think in a decade or two decade versus just the next quarter. Yeah. 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 Yeah, the great thing being private affords you is agility. If you think like our earlier conversation where we were talking about companies which have the ability to change very quickly to well, and companies that can question what might be happening in the ecosystem and how they need to change, when you're private, I think if we have to change something, you don't have to go back to a board of, you know, directors and get it approved and have a plan in place and get a buy-in from 10 different people. that allows you to change something in 5 minutes versus you know 5 months and that makes a significant impact in how well a company does over the long run it's right sure and when he says challenge and question problems or assumptions you could be a company of one and do it yeah because that's how i think it started off yeah, yeah. and over time people come in more time the space explodes i'm mm. happy that i met some of these uh, red coke brothers yeah Yeah. They are interesting. I mean, yeah. I'm surprised their political aspirations were not stronger than they have been up until now because they would definitely be the be a great candidate. Yeah. Not a great candidate, but a powerful candidate to be, you know, leading some kind of yeah. important post. But I love the way they have built the foundation for 50 mm. years yeah. for their political I don't know, it's like Kathputli but mm. it's just mad how yeah. um the segment of the book just made me go crazy when they stopped certain bills to be passed in congress by yeah. obama and trump yeah. yeah yeah and yeah the the crazy thing about america is corruption is legalized to such an extent yeah. that there are probably 10000 lobbyists in washington and lobbying is considered legal and very above water in every sense of the word the same in india would be considered corruption like essentially a industry personnel in the realm of government trying to influence a decision by But isn't that what's happening right now Nikhil don't you think corporates are running the country Yeah I I think they are but I think we mask it better than the Americans mm-hmm. do but the Americans have the art of having legalized it in a way where it, it no longer looks like corruption Right One thing I would have to give credit to the incumbent government here the Modi government here is maybe the top level has gotten more corrupt but at the bottom end i think they have done something to curtail corruption so um, a normal man like me going in might face less corruption but at the top end when it comes to you know governance and policies there might be more corruption i think it's just moving up the ladder yeah. much like it has in the west many years ago 
we tend to do everything america is doing with a 10 year lag anyway so yeah <laughs> that that's so true i think one of the reasons why zeroda or true beacon is a real flight is because i get to see these really high end financial apps mm-hmm. which do really basic stuff to start with but they're not available for india or in rupees and i think that with the entire app universe that you've created mm-hmm. you're somehow trying to solve one problem at a time Yeah. Yeah, true. We we're planning to get into the American markets now. The the funny thing with America is their banking systems were built in the 50s and 60s and they've had the disadvantage of having to tweak something which is very old to make it relevant to today. The advantage for India is since we began much uh, later in the 90s or the 2000s our systems are actually not as bad. I mean they are much better I would say than the American systems mm-hmm. like things like UPI and stuff have drastically changed the industry and in many respects that 10 year lag is kind of dissipating especially in banking. and i would say we are as evolved if not more than america is right now so companies and apps which do well here right now there is no reason for them not to do well in america mm. so we are planning to take some of our products there and try and integrate and see how it goes the the assumption of or the understanding of zerodha has always been a tech company yeah which yeah. happens to do brokerage yeah yeah i think i would agree with that yeah and it's a very different way of looking at brokerage or any industry right now mm-hmm. for all the listeners wherein you got to be tech in one way or the other because that is the final lever right now yeah yeah, yeah. that wasn't always the case i think uh, we were traders and brokers first and there's a guy who came in like many years ago called kailash i think he has kind of transformed it from being a broking company which has tech to being a tech company which does brokerage Wow, we we got to get Kailash because I I I hear him being mentioned across a lot of interesting platforms, right? And I'm happy that you took credit the entire tech revolution to him in the yeah, company. Yeah. You're really stoic, and I understand how you've been able to uh-huh. live part of the Greek philosophy that you've been studying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I I think I was more stoic growing up than I am right now. Uh-huh. I think I have gotten to that point where life is it hasn't changed yet, but life is changing more towards what I want to be doing versus what I had to be doing which was up until now. So now I'm okay to show emotion, I'm okay to kind of like, you know, like uh, not compartmentalize things which bother me in the way I might have in the past. I think it's age, right? Like I've lived my life backwards in a way where and what I should have been doing now I was doing much earlier. So feels like I want to now be doing what I should have been doing much earlier. <laughs> and live it mm-hmm. backwards. Yeah. What would they be like? Expand on it. I, I don't know like you know do things which kind of more appeal to my soul versus uh, things which are uh, something focused on a financial gain or whatever. So I would love to you know go spend 3 months in uh, on a beach reading or doing yoga or beat whatever. And I think I'm not there yet, but I feel like I'm on the path towards it. 
and maybe in a year or two i would be able to you know do stuff like that did you get into trading by choice yeah yeah totally by choice yeah i had the advantage of uh, being exposed to it by virtue of uh, my father nitin and stuff like that very very early but it was a very voluntary choice and i kind of like was first intrigued by it and then i enjoyed it and then i continued it <laughs> you come across as a person who doesn't get bored by his own company no no you would be surprised i i am as normal as the next guy i get bored all the time <laughs> i have huge fear of missing out i am insecure in many ways i Mm. I do get bored when I have nothing to do. I kind of mimic it by staying busy all the time. So, so there is this concept. There is this philosopher called Nietzsche, mm-hmm. uh, nihilism. Like you think about anything long enough, you will start about uh, thinking of things like you know life has no meaning and what is the point of a what is the point of b and c what is the point of uh, money what is the point of family what is the point of living all of that he makes a very interesting point that do you want your life to be the discovery of the meaning of life or do you want to have a fun life if the intention is to be happy and have fun life then find th- meaning in things that don't necessarily have a meaning so i spend most of my time staying occupied staying busy doing things which make me happy so that way i don't have to sit and wonder about all these you know everybody's life has ups and downs and hardships of all kind and insecurities of all kind i think the best way to counter that is you know staying busy doing things that you enjoy that way you don't spend too much of your life worrying about what is the point of something versus living life and enjoying what you're doing at that point mm. It's it's a counter uh, way of looking at what Seneca used to look at. Yeah. Um, have you read his piece on time? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where he actually talks about yeah. the exact opposite of it when dedicate all your time. Yeah. 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 But I feel like if I were to go the Seneca model way, I would like probably lose the plot in the world that we live today. Because mm. especially with COVID, I mean, you have you have to wonder, like you know, the odds of anybody contracting covid right now and the odds of what will happen to the world and economies and our parents and all of these things there are so many adversities at play if i were to sit and allocate time to thinking about what the meaning of all this is i would you know right i would not be the happiest of people to be around or for me to be with myself in that we will be quite uh, tumultuous it wouldn't uh, let me be happy i think the end goal for me is very simple i think many things in life are better served by keeping things simple right my simplistic desire right now is to be happy and i think i'm looking for different means by virtue of which which i can be happy now it reminds me of a conversation that one of my mentors mahatria had um so he happened to have a single day address uh, some of the richest people in a particular district and the evening happened to address the middle class and the low middle class and he happened to observe an interesting thing between them mm-hmm. he was like the rich were worried or thinking about how to get happy mm-hmm. if happiness is possible mm-hmm. and the poor the middle class were worried about is richness possible right. <laughs> yeah. yeah i think another lesson in life has been 
money makes you happy to a certain point yeah. right like i'm sure nobody wants to be worrying about where the next meal comes from or if they want to buy something that they not able to afford it or take care of their families and all of that but beyond that the incremental effect of money kind of like pairs it kind of goes down so you have to at different points in life i think try and figure out what your next thing has to be does it have to be i don't mean professionally but i think personally and emotionally you have to wonder if the goal of your personal emotional goal in the next 3 years has to be chasing a mm-hmm. versus trying to realize the benefits of what you have done up until now and being able to enjoy it and you know allocating more time to different pursuits in life and there are many right there are so many things one can do in life which reminds me of a podcast that i heard mm-hmm. a while back wherein I don't know who said it but mm. he said that if you're going to set up a goal mm. it means that you're setting up something that you're going to be unhappy about for really little yeah. or a long time yeah. so make sure that you set up or you yeah. pick goals that are worth being unhappy for so long yeah yeah true yeah that makes a lot of sense <laughs> there's so much more to talk about <laughs> i'm thinking should we continue the greek <laughs> i hope Which? i'm not coming out uh, very uh, what is the word for it uh like a pre madonna in a way like you know like okay. uh we're talking about things which are so evolved that i have like a little bit of understanding of and things that i think most if not everyone truly do not understand right. like you know not why so we're talking about arbitrary things i might be right about some of these things i might be wrong about some of these things but just like this the opinion of these things at this point is such yeah. and it's constantly evolving yeah. at no point should i think your listeners think i'm right or i'm wrong i think i'm just expressing my state of mind at this point in time this is a disclaimer abhi it was the conversation <laughs> but you know what both of us are evolving Yeah. And yeah. I I've, I've started doing this initially what I used to do is mm. I used to have this amazing story in front of me and mine out things and structure it and tell it to them in a repeated way so it gets in their psyche. But now I've started trusting my listeners intelligence. Right. I'm like you know what we're going to have a fun conversation. It's on their onus to extract whatever they can. And that way it has become much more yeah. easy for me to have a conversation mm-hmm. and just get somebody comfortable and get talking yeah because i yeah. want to create the space yeah 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 much like i was talking about investment and trading life is the same right like we all don't know what will happen like my notions if everything change constantly like what i believe in today will be completely different from what i believe maybe 10 days from now so i believe in the things that i do right now and i am saying the things i do right now based on the events that have transpired in maybe the last 6 months of my life but based on the events that occur in the next 6 months of my life what i think will be completely different yeah and it's constantly evolving and for everybody it's very personal to them and they have their own events in their life and nobody's right nobody's wrong yeah, yeah. you know that's a thing with individuals like us right mm-hmm. who read a lot who mm-hmm. have or introverts i i'm thinking you're an introvert too yeah i think i am right people tell me i am so i yeah. must be so we have loud mind mm-hmm. and i think all we are attempting to do right now is just get that loudness from our minds mm-hmm. out yeah yeah this cute yellow mic in front of us 
yeah yeah so but the the constant factor that i have come to realize at different phases in my life is people are not different i mean there are thousands of people who are smarter more able more hard working more of so many things i think luck and timing is such a big part of all of our lives i think people don't realize that yeah i mean if your listener base is uh, the startup ecosystem to some extent i think one thing to pay heed to is being a market which is growing in material of what your product is and a market which has significant room left to grow that probably increases the odds of how lucky you can get but most of the people you see today who have gotten lucky and you read about a lot has to do with how lucky they were and at what point they attempted which product versus how able they might have been as people i'm happy that we brought luck into the conversation because luck is really beaten down yeah. in our in our indian ecosystem mm. right mm. i i was happy 20 years ago where at least business people would give some credit to stars and when somebody would really pick mm. up they'd be like his star is good right but now we have created this entire ecosystem around self made so mm. and so that mm. we have really pushed luck out of the entire story yeah telling narrative of our yeah conversation yeah yeah no luck i mean if you go back in history as to why who became a king maybe you were born to the right father maybe your brother died at the right time maybe or you got him killed <laughs> yeah you got him killed <laughs> luck has been prevalent throughout our history why did uh, islam do so well and other religions did not why did christianity do well for so many years why did we have renaissance phase why did we have some artists doing better than different mm-hmm. artists even though there were many able ones or more able ones in that time so much can be attributed to luck it's not even funny i was reading that uh, book which is there the michelangelo one mm-hmm. and which is it uh, the one by anger okay his biography so he talks about how many times michelangelo got lucky in yeah. his life and how much he did to go back in history and change his own history because he's one of the few artists who became popular while he was alive like yeah. much like einstein and his riches he was yeah. his yeah yeah and in, just to for the listeners at that time painters were equated to laborers yeah. and he became an aristocrat yeah yeah even though he came from a family which was not royalty he kind of managed to go back in a history and make it look like he was an aristocrat to begin with i think a lot about his life has a lot of the good things which happened in his life happened because of his friendship with the medici yeah. but outside of that like we might look upon michelangelo as the as the best sculptor painter fresco artist whatever who lived in the 15th century or the 16th century later part of his life but we fail to realize there were hundreds of people who lived at that time did better work than him the reason we remember michelangelo today and do not remember the others is right. luck but outside of luck if you have to attribute to it to anything is how he was a great pr guy you know and at many different times in our life our ability to self promote and do great pr 
makes A do so much better than B. So strangely uncanny factors lead to people doing better versus the traditional ones like you know intelligence and hard work and stuff like that. This is so on spot. In fact, for a year I've been hunting this book down. Mm-hmm. It's called Wealth of Michelangelo. Mm-hmm. It's such a rare damn piece, and I haven't been able to find it yet. <laughs> But it actually talks about how he is. This researcher recently, very recently, I think in 1990s, found out rare document that talks about the wealth of Michelangelo. Mm-hmm. And initially, it was believed that he was rich, but nobody knew to what extent yeah. Michelangelo was rich, yeah. and to what extent he was uh, an aristocrat. Yeah, I I don't think he he was not born rich because no, I no. I remember at 14 his father sold him to the master. Uh, Painter who used to run like assembly line workshop, wherein he was sold for twenty five florins, uh, gold florins, or something like that, which was like very very nominal wage. And even after Lorenzo the Il Magnifico, the Medici, he died. For many years, he didn't have a patron, nor did he have a workshop. So back in the fifteenth century, people who would create mass paintings, like paintings which were mass produced, would have workshops on their own, and the great ones had patrons who would pay for, pay for the paintings. And for many years, even though he didn't have a patron, he didn't open up a workshop. He continued to improve his skill, and you know, I think that in a way is testament to the drive that he might have had, that he would rather pick. Not earning a wage for ten years of his life, and these guys spent ridiculous amounts of time on each piece that they created. Right, like if it was a sculpture that he created, he would have probably spent three years, five years creating every single piece. I think drive and hunger. Like I think we are kind of like shifting the focus of what makes people work and what makes companies work away from hard work and uh, intelligence and being smart. To their ability to change with the times, hunger, luck. I think these uh, factors play a much bigger role as to why something is successful or someone is successful versus uh, also PR. I forgot that versus uh, the traditional school of thought, which teaches one that you need to be hardworking, you need to be smarter, you mm. need to read. Yeah. So I think, yeah. Plenty of stuff mm. to learn from mm. history, don't you think? Yeah, yeah. we we are two history buffs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we can go on, and I'm so happy you've started on this conversation about Greek yeah. philosophy and yeah. Michelangelo, and this yeah. is gonna soon get into painting and all yeah. of that. Yeah. Wow. I, I love art. <laughs> you do? Wow! <laughs> I love the kind of art that I can't afford, like the Renaissance art and stuff like that. I really like this one Dutch painter called Vermeer. Vermeer, okay. Yeah, he only Tell made like thirty or forty pieces. Uh-huh. Miserable life. Died without you know selling any of his pieces at any kind of you know reasonable recognition. But I love his his whole thing was the use of light, and he did it so uh-huh. well that uh, I really love his paintings. They're very. Uh, he has the ability to tell a story. With one frame, which very few other painters have, and for him, for us to only have thirty or forty of his pieces. What what time frame was he in? I, was in the Da Vinci time frame? No, no, he was not in the Da Vinci time frame. Time frame was Vermeer. I'm guessing 
he was a renaissance artist to some extent so he must have been 14th century wait mm-hmm. let me just tell you 14th because this form of a thought comes a lot in 17th, Da Vinci's 17th century, right, 17th right, century. post yeah. this, com- this, this thought of um, yeah. Da Vinci oh he's capturing the motion yeah. yep yep yeah You know, I, I was astounded by what uh, Leonardo da Vinci was. This is 500th yeah. year. Yeah. And uh, he's been able to capture. <coughs> hmm. Yeah. This, the, this whole, this capturing light the way he yeah. did. Yeah. Wow. Beautiful. You know, when you look at all the Renaissance paintings, mm-hmm. the blue, I mean, mm-hmm. I wouldn't say Vermeer or Renaissance, but if you were to go back to some of the Renaissance artists, the color blue comes from a stone called lapis. Mm-hmm. Lapis lazuli. it was really expensive to create that blue and that ore would only be found in afghanistan and it had to be imported all the way to florence and the great italian painters and all of that so the color blue if you look at any of these renaissance paintings is only reserved for mother mary and the important parts of the painting so if you look at any of the paintings from that era you can just figure out who the important person in the piece is by seeing who is wearing blue blue wow So I actually went and got a ore like a 10 kilo piece of that stone. Are you serious? Lastly <laughs> imported and I have that at home. Yeah, it's art is something that I really like. Unfortunately, the kind of art mm-hmm. that really appeals to you is so unaffordable that very few people can actually go out and as an investment to art is amazing it's yeah. on, it's one of the only asset classes which has not seen a downturn in the last maybe 15 20 years it appreciates like 10 12% year on year and it's not volatile it doesn't go up or down because such a small pocket of investors hold on to art <laughs> <laughs> we've hit the 9 o'clock mark do yeah. you want to continue or this is yeah. such a yeah we can keep going on and on right yeah That's the beauty of podcasts. Mm. Um a good conversation. Uh, up to it's really long though. We did two hours, didn't we? Yeah. The, you see that's the beauty of podcasts. Mm. And thanks to Bangalore traffic, we'll soon want to come back. <laughs> <laughs> you know, interestingly True. I was told uh, when I started off that Puneet nobody's going to listen to half uh, an hour. Uh, And then like I told you conversation of conversation started really extending to 2 to 3 hours. Uh, And I was insecure for a moment like wait, do you think something like this so i asked my audience hey you know what uh, an entrepreneur and i jammed for 3 hours mm. and there's so much i don't know what to take out so i'm going to just leave it to you guys either give you guys the full right or i actually die in my editing right. room right. deciding what to pick right. and the audience went you know what just give us the 3 hours uh-huh. let us choose what to pick what to go uh-huh. and they're now it's up to them and they're mm. thanks to bangalore traffic and the traffic across the country uh-huh. they hear it in the cars they hear it in the cars they hear it in the school buses uh. tie to tie three cities people are um, chiming in uh. from 20 rupees to 2000 crores kalpana saroj okay yeah. wow mm. you, you know the thing between two of you um both of you and she said it so beautifully it's, it's already recording she said punita i haven't passed 10th mm. she dropped out in 9th because she was married off mm. but today she is a practical ca and a practical lawyer mm. and that's the thing about um, individuals like you you know uh, you've left schooling and mm. that some in a way has saved you all yeah, yeah and your curiosity has made you practical trader practical entrepreneur mm. i agree 
Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad we did this early in the morning because during markets, I kind of tend to get distracted. Yeah. <laughs> You're also getting distracted now. <laughs> yeah, it's the same thing, markets. Yeah. It's a drug, like you said. Yeah. Because you have so many open positions, right? You have to wonder what's going on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there's so much going on. Like if I show you my chat conversations, there's like 20 issues which are going on every morning. So it kind of like you're wondering, did this get solved? Did that get solved? In all this, I, I still feel the psychology and the kind of books or kind of, I would say, the kind of thing one indulges in mm-hmm. apart from work mm-hmm. becomes the foundation of yeah, yeah. I'm very vain like that. I indulge in all the stupid things which typically are detrimental to your health. Like what? What do you? <laughs> other than <laughs> like the jewel, like, like the what? The jewel which I'm smoking, nicotine, mm-hmm. alcohol once in a week. I kind of like that's like my outlet. I think I have a bunch of people I like to meet because otherwise I'm very antisocial. That one day I'm social. <laughs> liquid courage <laughs> yeah. yeah I think if you're a little bit introverted it makes a huge difference in your life you need that liquid courage do you drink? no no yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm the other end of the power spectrum yeah. no drink no smoke no drugs uh, no drugs too yeah. yeah the other stuff like the drinking I think once in a week it kind of like really lets you reboot in a way you know and that's the only day I meet people right like human beings, like human interaction is restricted <laughs> to that day. Otherwise, my life is fairly isolated because I go home, I come in here early by 8, then I go home by 8, 9, and then I work out and I go to bed. Mm. So it's kind of required, I think. You know, this is what the youngsters don't get. Mm. They have they have fallen into this idea of, you know, there has to be a routine huh. and they don't like routine. They don't huh. like structure. Yeah. Um, but they don't realize that when you look at history... Huh. Some of the most prolific geniuses have had routines. Yeah, yeah. No, routine and discipline is so essential, it's not even funny. I think uh, for me, I don't have a choice because I'm kind of like in bed with the markets and they, they don't wait for no one. But for anybody, I think if you have a routine in place, even the day when you let loose and you let your hair down becomes so much more like cherishing in a way you know if you didn't have a routine and you were doing that every day you'd kind of wonder like what are you doing but if you have a routine six days a week and the seventh day is for you makes the seventh day so much more enjoyable because mm. now we are at the edge of making the most of yeah. it yeah there's a corollary to this there's a problem of getting over scheduled on that one day mm. i see people and my generation is i don't know if it's in how old are you now i'm 24 okay I don't, I don't sound and look 24. Yeah. I get it. <laughs> LinkedIn says I'm 38. There's an analysis on LinkedIn my team did. Uh-huh. And they say, Puneet, you sound like a 38-year-old on LinkedIn. Wow. No, you don't. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Stupid AI tool. But, oh God, it, that LinkedIn joke killed where I was going. You know the problem with my generation? And I think it's with your generation mm-hmm. as well, wherein... We I are hate the fact that you're putting me in a different generation. I'm, I'm so sorry. <laughs> you come from a different thought space right. more than the age. Because right. I don't think age is something right now which is fluid between us two. Right. We are we're probably 20 years ahead of our mm. contemporaries. Mm. Like other 24-year-old, my batchmates from MBA, yeah. they're right now working from home. And I don't know what you're doing in an office on this day, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think from thought space, yeah. you're much ahead. 
you're probably 500 years old with all the 500 <laughs> books you've read. <laughs> if you look at it that way, because each book is concise a decade. And the problem with my generation is that that one or two days that they get, that is where they're putting the options on hold. Right. And now you see a friend not confirming immediately. Right. They want to see which is, a, and they wait till the fag end, like, mm. you know, there may be a better option that comes in. Mm. And they're overscheduling their weekend. Mm. Yeah, true. True. I, I have the, I have the privilege of not having any plans on my weekend, but that is frustrating too, because, because time keeps running out, right? On Sunday, you're wondering, oh, I only have one day today. I have to do something. Mm. Yeah. But Sundays typically, I end up having a good time. I kind of like do nothing. What, what, what's nothing? Nothing is a lot of work. So nothing what is, is nothing? Wake up, lie in bed, watch Netflix, play some game, maybe football, badminton, sit in my balcony or sit at home and just chill. Not much. Have some friends come over, have a couple of glasses of wine or something like that. Yeah, something very peaceful. Yeah. Eat some good food. So Sunday I eat everything. Like <laughs> so I make it a point to, you know, order cake and cookies and like a whole bunch of junk food and eat it on Sundays. Yeah. So I look forward to that. It's good to because in so much of volatility that mm-hmm. kind of environment you live in, it's good to look forward to something like that. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Especially with COVID, what is you can't do much, right? Like you can't really go anywhere. Yeah. You can't go out. You can't meet many people. So you probably can have two three friends over and in amongst that much company the best you can do is you know like play a nice game watch a nice movie have a couple of drinks eat something which is in my mind junk stuff like that <laughs> that i think that's been something you know we have lived this life for these many years mm. but it's new for a lot of other people <laughs> right now in the covid scene yeah I know that there's a lot of social activities that you've been doing. It's all on the internet for you guys to mm. look up. I don't want to regurgitate and repeat it. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm happy and mm. uh, proud of you guys doing mm. that. But what has fundamentally <coughs> been defining for you in this time that you've we found? Mm, I think it comes at some level. Like, if you were to ask me the same thing five years ago, I was more in a money hoarding space. As in planning the next 10, 20 years of your life, comparing it with others, thinking if you have enough, stuff like that. Kind of transitioning to what is the point of holding money? You don't have dependents. I mean, life is so uncertain that who knows what will happen tomorrow. So at least might as well have some people who like what you have done while you've been around. Yeah. So we're doing whatever little bit that we can. Not that it's making a big difference and the larger, we're not really solving any problem. We're probably like adding like a couple of droplets of water to somebody who's not had a glass of water in many years. There's a concept like, my therapist keeps saying this to me, there's a concept called helper's high. Hmm. It's It's a jargon in their industry. So... Each time you feel like you're helping someone, there are a bunch of chemicals which get released in your body which give you a high of its own. So that in itself is an addiction like every other thing. So helping other people and doing this whole charity thing might be less based on altruism or... It's more selfish at the heart of it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 
the greek book that i'm talking to mm. you about <laughs> this book has been transformative to me nikhil because it just changed the assumptions i've made for so long about things that you this is it talks a lot about psychology apparently but connects to greek philosophy and one thing that they talk about which talks about tithing and giving back is essentially what this is this north star and i'm regurgitating the book here just for the context and for you um the north star of somebody living the greek philosophy is this this basic tenet of are you contributing to others and that shifted a lot of things because i was thinking contributing to others means more content more more stuff but it could be as simple as just having a nice conversation with somebody right now in covid time saying hey khana khaya kya like right and these have a ripple effect do you maybe saying a droplet in an ocean right i think it has a ripple effect yeah yeah hopefully it does yeah. we'll know soon enough but hopefully it does yeah yeah i think everybody has to do more we have to do more ourselves but uh, the good thing is right now in the society that we live in giving is starting to become cool versus holding and it's i become think a branding strategy yeah and i think that will it might be vain it might be vapid it might be whatever but i think once giving becomes cooler than hoarding when you look upon a wealthy man and you look upon a man who has given away his wealth and b is cooler than a mm. when that uh, that notion is kind of consolidated in society a lot more people will go the b route yeah. you know but the bad part I, i i disagree with you in here cuz cuz then they would have to cross a and go to b and that's where ricardo sandler comes in mm-hmm. i don't know if you follow him but i actually follow him and he says it so beautifully that if you're giving back that means idiot you took too much to begin with <laughs> his his fund manager told him dude had you not done all of this you'd be forex worth what you are right now yeah, yeah. and one of the richest ones in brazil yeah no i agree with you but the society we live in people already have a lot right yeah yeah <laughs> that's a ba- you know what i observed yeah. in covid this time is that people who we thought did not have food had more food than they know what to do with yeah yeah when i was distributing food i don't know what you call it food boxes right hot food and mm. i would uh, reach it to do a few people mm. by 3 3 pm 3:30 and i i you can see when somebody is hungry or somebody's already had food mm. and they they're still accepting it and they're still yeah, having yeah, it they were holding it also they were holding yeah. it yes, that's that's what i'm talking about yeah. right that, yeah yeah yeah, yeah. cuz they didn't know right they don't have if you don't know where your next meal is going to come from you're going to hold it like we did a lot of hot meals i think we did about half a million hot meals through the lockdown the crazy thing was when we started doing uh, ration kits so we went into this area with 5000 of them or something 5000 kids or something like that but 8000 people showed up now many people who got the kit went home came back and took another kit but the crazy thing was because people had waited in line for 3 hours or 4 hours to get a kit and when they their turn in the line came about and they realized that there are no more kits left people got really agitated and they started you know fighting and throwing stuff and it immediately meant it to an entitlement yeah from yeah 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 even though somebody might but that's human nature you know i mean 
I think you're programmed to think about where your next Russian meal or whatever will come by versus who is giving you the meal and what has happened there. That's very natural. Yeah. It's like we are me first. Yeah. Then. Yeah. We've always been me first as a... It's great that we're talking and dissecting charity and giving back mm-hmm. because it gives different perspective to listeners as well. Mm-hmm. Because the other side of looking cool is these realities that we don't we just shrug it under the sofa we don't really talk about it yeah. and that's why I feel I don't know do you still do you, a part of you still feels bad that you know what a big part of it is still taken by those who are already well off not really I mean these are not people who are well off but they might be able to afford yeah. food but you can't I think especially with charity you have to have some kind of a quality check in place but beyond a certain point I mean, you should just do it and not think about it. Yeah, some people are doing a great job. I think the Akshar Batra guys are amazing. I think uh, people like the Zazim Penji and Nadar and so many of these people. I was talking to Azim Penji's son, Rishabh, mm-hmm. who's become the chairman of the foundation. We were in Davos together a couple of months ago in February. So he was saying 73% is what they held in the company. And of that 73%, 67% they have transferred to the trust. And his goal in his lifetime is to transfer the balance, which is incredible. I think their family is, they're one of the few families which have incredibly sound morals. We need more people like that for the youth of today and for the people who can contribute, they set a great benchmark and example to follow. You know, guys, you don't need to be like Premji right now. However, and this is one of the lessons that keep coming back on Balata, you know, like build with integrity. Stay with integrity. You can take his morals today. In fact, take it from day zero. What ethics and morals he has. And people respect. And there is a, there's a, Naval says it so beautifully. I, I don't think I never beat it. He says integrity is long-term greedy. And a very good example for Premji is the investment that Mustafa PC took from ID Fresh. He had three options. You must be aware of the story already. So I won't regurgitate. But having two better options in front of him, he still picked the third option, which was low, which was valued much lower. But because there was Azim Premji backing it, and the values and the principles were aligned. Totally agree. I think if you're working for a company where you know the promoter is like that, kind of inspires you to do a little bit more as well. I think integrity is something that's losing its charm, especially mm-hmm. in the startup ecosystem, right? Because mm-hmm. now we're seeing it's not a zero-sum game anymore. It's become it's become greedy mm-hmm. when you know one or two people can exit so large. Mm-hmm. Somewhere losing that root yeah. that actually started all of. Mm-hmm. What principles do you stick by? And have stuck by over the years. I think as long as you're not causing harm to anyone else, it's a very broad principle, right? As long as you're not uh, harming anyone else, whatever you're doing is kind of fun. And I think being loyal to people who have been there for you is, again, a big metric by which kind of introspect in a way. I think the both of them. But before we come to the final question, how can people reach out to you? Instagram. Easy. In the show description, guys. And girls. 
what is the impact that you seek to make in all fairness to be extremely honest i don't know yet i think i'm discovering along the way what i would really like to change or what impact i'd like to make hopefully 5 years down the line i have the answer to this question but right now no <laughs> i'll follow up on you <laughs> yeah, yeah it's been a refreshing conversation more than anything else yes. i think there are so many perspectives that we've gotten down here of course there's no structure of course it's freewheeling of course we go to so many tangents right but i'm happy that i think if the listeners can take one or two key learnings from this conversation it's worth it to an half hours that you guys have spent listening to us ramble about everything from greek philosophy <laughs> to paintings to trading yeah i have to say this has been one of if not the most uh, candid interview i've ever done i think you're very easy to talk to you have a great ability to bring out stuff yeah thank you it's been fun <laughs> thank you now go and make some galata <laughs> super